Hello there, Barbara. Hello, Norm. How are you doing? I'm well. Today we're talking with Emily Doolittle, who is a, a Nova Scotian composer living abroad. Yes, very interesting woman. We've played some of her music, which, and I've played some of her solo stuff too. Really like her stuff. I think of her as a Nova Scotian composer still, as I think many of us do. Uh, even though she hasn't lived here for a number of years, <laughs> but she still feels quite, it feels like she's actively working in Canada. So I think that makes this a great uh, subject of this Canadian Music Centre episode. Yes. Yeah. So uh, since this is one of our uh, CMC episodes, this time I want to talk about the various activities the CMC is involved in across the country. As well as the National Office in Toronto, there are five regional CMC centres. There's one here in Halifax, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver. And these all promote the music of the regional composers through events such as concerts, score readings, educational outreach, other cultural activities. I know the Atlantic region is taking part in the East Coast Music Awards that are happening soon. They present a classical showcase there. Um, many of the centers have their own libraries and librarians, so you can easily peruse the CMC's published scores. Uh, you can listen to recordings of music by associate composers or get assistance exploring all the online resources on the CMC's website. The librarians are really, really friendly. And if our listeners want to find out more, they can go to cmccanada.org. I very much remember going to the regional office when it was uh, housed in Sackville, New Brunswick, where I grew up, and and hanging out with the librarian there and just yeah. flipping through uh, all of this Canadian yep. music. Uh, and uh, that, was a, that was a really strong memory for me, and I think it was probably what started me on, on my path, just having those that all of that creation in a little, actually quite a small room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at Mount Allison yep. University. No, I grew up in Vancouver, and there was a little little storefront on... I'm yeah. not sure if it was West 4th Avenue. Uh, really interesting place just to go and <laughs> poke around. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'm happy to tie uh, Emily in with uh, one of these Canadian Music Centre episodes. And let's listen to our talk with Emily. Yes, let's do it. You are listening to New Musings on New Music. This is a podcast where cellist Norm Adams and me, pianist Barbara Pritchard, converse with guests from the world of contemporary art music, exploring some of the fascinating ideas found there and demystifying all those wild and wonderful notes. Today we're speaking with uh, Emily Doolittle, a composer who lives right now in Glasgow, but who we still consider to be a Nova Scotian composer. We've kept you for our own, uh, Emily. Thanks. Um, <laughs> welcome to our podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. <laughs> so, uh, Emily, we always start our podcasts out with how you became Emily Doolittle that we are talking to today. What was your sort of journey through your life? How did you get to become a musician? How did you get to become a composer? How did you end up in Glasgow? of all places. Yeah, that's a, right, that's a story that could take days to tell, but I'll try no. to uh, condense it into maybe the few minutes version. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I started playing music when I was a kid, probably like many children in Halifax, 
I took recorder lessons with Priscilla Evans. I bet I'm not the only person you've spoken to who started out that way. Um, we were not actually a good match of personalities, so I didn't stay in those uh, recorder lessons for very long. Um, I soon switched over to taking uh, piano with Linda Tyler and then Nancy Carr, also both still in Halifax. Um, but I would say that I always had an interest in making my own sounds and, you know, improvising or I guess I, I didn't really know that being a composer was a possibility. So I was sort of interested in creating things, but I didn't really know where or how. Obviously, most of the composers whose music I was playing as a student were, you know, people like Beethoven who were dead European men. So um, I wasn't really aware of composition as a, you know, career possibility until I started going away to various summer camps um, to study oboe. I became an oboist. I studied with Margaret Phoebe and Suzanne Lemieux, also in Halifax. Um, I started going away to summer camps to study oboe and composition was a course I could sign up for and I did and I remember the first year I tried to compose it um, I didn't really know how to get out of the repertoire um, I had been playing particularly as an oboe so everything I tried to write sounded like a baroque oboe sonata um, but the next year I started composing I think it was 18 Tawani Summer Music Center in Tennessee. I had a great teacher who just suggested trying all kinds of different compositional approaches using various 20th and, uh, well, I guess, yeah, 20th, it wasn't the 21st century yet, various uh, 20th century composers as uh, models. And that was a way of sort of springing me out of the music I had been immersed in playing. Um, and I will say that although, you know, playing music has always been really important to me. And I've actually just started playing oboe again after not having really touched it for about 15 years. Um, but I've been playing piano and fiddle and like, you know, the physical aspect and, you know, the experiential aspect of playing music has always been really important to me. And I had entered university as an oboist, uh, as a performer, because I didn't really know of any other options. But performance was never quite the right option for me. Like, I've never really loved performing, and I've never really loved practicing. And I think to be a performer, you have to love at least one of those. But I, I just didn't, I knew I wanted to be a musician, um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't know any other way to be one. So, you know, I'm really glad for uh, the years I, w I did spend as a performer, but when I learned more about composing and that was a thing one could do, I sort of knew right away that that was the right, um, the right thing for me. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, composing can be very hard sometimes. I'm not one of those composers who finds it always fun or easy, but it's the thing that always keeps bringing me back, that always grabs me. So, uh, gosh, that's only gotten me till I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> We're 40 minutes in. Can we, can we pause for one second yep. at 18? Uh, because I'm interested in you knowing really early that you were a creator. Mm. I, I'm not sure everybody can identify that. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe it's only looking back that, you know, of course, but I think, um, you know, I remember that I had some conflict in my recorder classes because I wanted to like change the tunes a little bit or, you know, just make them change the rhythms a bit or change the yes. notes. Um, so, yeah, you know, it wasn't maybe 
I'm not sure if I was conscious of wanting to be a creator so much as I just sort of saw these things and I was like, well, why can't I do it the way I want to do it? Why do I have to do it the way it is on the page? Um, So it was maybe, I mean, it was only when I was able to start taking composition lessons um, or when I, you know, was able to sign up for that composition class that I suddenly realized actually, oh, there's a name for the way I want to relate to music. Right. Yeah, I guess it was like, I don't know, finding a home or something after not yeah. quite knowing where that was. Yeah. But again, like, I, you know, there's people who say, oh, it must be so nice to be a composer, just so fun to sit down and write those beautiful notes all day. And I don't actually find it an easy career at all. But, um, you know, it's me. I need to keep coming back to it even, you know, when I have those days when I where I uh, want to give up completely. <laughs> we all have those days. We I'm all sure. have those Absolutely. days. Sure. Everyone that listens to this has those days. Yeah. Yeah. So continue from 18. Okay, right. So 18. So I had, right. So I'd started out at Dalhousie as an oboist. I was really, um, I mean, like I say, being a performer is a huge part of who I am, even though it's not something I'm doing professionally now, but I really am grateful for all the experience I had with that. Then sort of partway through my degree, I switched to being a composition major. I studied first with Steve Tittle and then with Dennis Farrell. Um, And yeah, I had a great experience uh, with the Halifax music community and studying at Dal. Um, I remember, you know, growing up in Nova Scotia, I always felt like it was sort of off in the corner of, uh, I don't know, just very far away from all the musical centers. And I remember when I went to do my master's degree at Indiana University, which of course is one of the biggest music schools in probably in the world, I remember feeling quite intimidated and thinking, you know, this kid from far away Nova Scotia is not going to know anywhere near as much as the students at this big musical center. But when I got there, I discovered that actually um, the music education I had had was amazing and that, you know, I very much held my own um, there. So, yeah, I did my master's degree in composition. I will say that actually, like, I was, even though I knew I wanted to be a composer, it was also quite scared to commit to that. So my first year there, I had actually been accepted both as a composer and as a music theorist. And it seemed a little bit safer to me to be a music theorist. So um, I signed up as a music theorist. I was quite lucky that my teacher, Don Freund, said it would be okay for me to take composition lessons, even though I was a music theory major. And then during that first year of my master's degree, I realized that actually I did want to be a composer and that, you know, sort of like you say, those scary days, those difficult days, those days where you think you need to give up are actually part of it. And just because you have those days sometimes doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So I think that first year when I had sort of the safety net of being a music theorist um, helped me just come to terms with the fact that I really did want to be a composer, even even when I felt insecure, when it uh, felt quite difficult. So, yeah, so I did my master's degree there. Um, Then I went to the Netherlands for two years to study with Louis Andreessen, which was a really um, fantastic experience. I was there from, what was it, 1997 to 1999, which I think was a particularly vibrant time to be living in Amsterdam. There was just so much going on in terms of um, new music. I remember feeling, you know, the first six months or so that I was there, I just felt 
so overwhelmed because there were so many concerts going on every night. Um, I remember we would, uh, Louis would always encourage us to sneak into the concerts for free. <laughs> I remember I would even like dress all in black and bring my oboe so I could like sneak in the stage door <laughs> to the concert come out. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, we would all do it and like, There'd be lots of good concerts. So you go to the first half of one concert, then get in your bike, zip over, go to the second half of the other concert. And it was just so great and so exciting. But I also actually found it really hard to write music for the first six months or so that I was there because I felt like right. in a way I was, um, I don't want to say I was hearing too much, but I sort of felt like anything I wanted to hear, I could just go hear it rather than write right. it. So right. it took me a while to sort of settle into how I could you know, take in so much, but also guard the time for my own ideas to develop. Um, yeah, and I should, I guess I should mention also sort of going alongside this, I had always been interested in Murray Schaefer's works. Um, I, and then I had, you know, I heard a number of his pieces at Scotia Festival, including the Music for Wilderness Lake performance at Camp Kidston, I think it was 19, 93 and then i went to a couple of environmental music workshops that Schaefer did and then i joined his project and wolf still inherit the moon which took place for a week um every year sort of camping in the wilderness in ontario and working together to create this um very large-scale music and theater and ritual work so i would say that at the same time as we was having the very urban musical and artistic experience of living in Amsterdam. I was also in the summers having the very, I think very Canadian, very wild experience of making music with Schaefer and the other people who were part of that project. Um, and I think, you know, those are sort of equally formative parts mm -hmm. of who I am. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I went to Amsterdam, I sort of, you know, I was very excited to study with Louis Andreessen, but I wasn't really taking any classes and I sort of thought I wanted to get away from academia. I sort of, um, I loved my studies at Indiana University, but there was a lot of bureaucracy and I just found the sort of bureaucracy and hoops and regimentedness um, quite frustrating. So for a while I had thought I never ever wanted to go back to a university. Um, but as, as I was in Amsterdam, I sort of started missing being part of a community of students and missing reading papers together and discussing them and missing sort of having that shared sense. I mean, of course, I had many composer friends and some of them were also students, but there was less of a shared sense of everybody sort of doing the same thing and discussing it. Um, and then I started to realize that, you know, maybe I could actually find the kind of doctoral program I wanted to do, which would maybe provide the sense of community, but also the freedom to study the kinds of things I wanted to study. And I did find that at, at Princeton. So I, I, after two years, I moved from the Netherlands to Princeton, New Jersey, and did my doctorate there, which was also, you know, it was a fantastic experience. Again, the um, faculty were just really supportive and, you know, a really interesting group of people. Um, and but it was interesting because I feel like at Indiana, you know, it was a big American state school and there was this sort of sense you 
needed to show that you were well-rounded and could do everything. So there was sort of the feeling like you need to write your string quartet and your wind quintet and your orchestra piece and your song and your, there was sort of just, right. which I think is great. I mean, versatility is really great. You know, it's not to knock that at all, but that was one kind of experience. And then at Princeton, it was very much like figure out who you are and how to do that. And so, again, I enjoyed having the support just to go off in whatever esoteric directions I wanted to go off into. You know, the way that doctoral program was set up, you would do two years first of just taking lessons, whatever classes you wanted to. I mean, it didn't have to be all music classes. I took a painting class and a Greek class and a French class and, you know, whatever you, whatever you wanted, but also some great music seminars. But you did two years of that before settling on a dissertation topic. And I had, you know, I've mentioned my interest in music outdoors, which sort of grew and developed through my exposure to Schaefer's work and, you know, to participating in his collaborative projects. Um, but I would also say that moving to Amsterdam, which ironically, you know, it's a very urban setting, of course. I mean, there's very little nature in Amsterdam, but I think suddenly finding myself in such an urban setting, it actually caused me to listen to birds and the other animals around me more carefully. Um, and early on when I moved to Amsterdam, I was sort of woken up one morning uh, by hearing a, an amazing bird singing outside my window. I had no idea what it was. Um, it turned out to be a European blackbird, uh, but I was just really interested in the ways short bits of what it's saying sounded a lot like human music, but the totality of what it's saying didn't sound like human music at all. Um, and I was just really fascinated by this and I decided to write a piece exploring the difference between the ways um, I thought a bird and a human would deal with the same set of musical motifs. So I transcribed all these blackbird motifs. And then um, speaking of animals, I think my dog may, may be howling in the other room. So if you <laughs> see me walking around, it's because I'm trying to, <laughs> Quick, to rescue my howling dog. Oh, God, oh God I'll, I'll play you my dog piece. It's, he's really an excellent howler. Um, let me just see if he's even. Idris? Idris. Sorry, Idris. Wow. Oh, there he is. He's in his crate. <laughs> Hi, Idris. You want to join me, Mr. Dogfog? Yeah, so I just became interested in thinking about ways in which birdsong is and is not like human music. And I was also reading about, um, you know, all the experiments with sign language and chimpanzee and gorilla communication and so on, and starting to think, of, think about animal culture. Then I went to Princeton, started my doctorate. Then after two years, we had to think of a dissertation topic. And I am so glad that I thought of bringing together my interest in the natural world and composition. I decided to look at the question of whether um, some animal songs can be considered music. And in a sense, that's something I've been thinking about ever since then. So for you know more than 20 years now. Um, but yeah, at that time, it was a question I was approaching maybe mostly musically and philosophically. But through the course of my research, I, of course, was reading a lot of biology. I got to talk to a lot of biologists. And then since then, I've been doing a variety of collaborations with biologists or with people in various different fields, looking at bird songs from multiple perspectives, including the musical, but not only musical. Um, and that takes me up till 20 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> we ran into the word zoomusicology in, yeah. in your bio. And is that that study of, 
of the of the relationship between animal sounds and music or yeah or... so musicology is sort of an emerging field so musicology so musicology yeah. i guess people some people say zoo musicology um sort of an emerging field looking at the relationship between animal songs and human music i think people do have you know slightly different ideas or different ways of defining it. For me, it's sort of any study that looks at the relationship between animal songs and human music. And of course, humans are animals, so it can include looking at human music. But for me, it, I, I guess it's just a highly interdisciplinary field which brings together all these different ways we can understand animal songs, both the animal songs in themselves, but also how we relate to them and what they mean, what they can mean to humans. Mm -hmm. uh, you've gotten us to 20 years ago, Emily. Still wondering how you got to Scotland. Yeah, so, right, I loved studying at Princeton, but after four years, I suddenly wanted to be living, I don't know, maybe more in a city, maybe not in the States anymore. Um, and I had always wanted to move to Montreal. I was writing my dissertation then, but I didn't, I wasn't taking any more courses, so I didn't really need to be physically at Princeton all of the time. So I just, packed up my car and moved to Montreal. Um, and I lived there for five years while I finished my dissertation and freelanced and, you know, sort of lived the life of a single freelance artist in a little tiny apartment in a great city, um, which was good because that was something I always wanted to do. It's funny because I feel like, you know, I loved being at Princeton and then suddenly I needed to leave because um, I was ready to be somewhere else. And I think the same in Montreal, like I had a great five years there and then suddenly I was ready to go on and do something else. It's great being a freelancer, but it's also, it can be very sort of you know, I mean, I'm sure you have experienced this. You're sort of always putting together a bit of this and a bit of that. I had at one point thought I um, never wanted an academic career, but I started to realize that I missed teaching. And again, I missed that community. Yeah, so I started applying for academic positions because I suddenly realized that is what I wanted to do. Um, and, oh, I, I should mention this story. So when I was living in Montreal, there was like an English language arts network and I had had a few years where I was quite successful as a freelancer. I mean, not that I earned much, but I earned enough to get by and I got various grants. And I was asked to do a talk for the English Language Arts Network on, you know, how to apply for grants successfully. So I gave a talk and I often feel very anxious about giving talks, but this one went great. Like it was a really good talk. I felt very proud of it. People really enjoyed it. They felt inspired. I felt very good about the information I was able to share with people. And then I didn't get a single thing I applied for for the next year. Like absolutely, <laughs> literally everything was Classic. turned down. Classic. Oh. <laughs> exactly. So I had to really, you know, of course I had given everybody like the pep talk about not getting discouraged and keeping yeah. doing it. And then. Um, you gave away your mojo. Yeah. Right, exactly. I, right, I always worry a little bit about giving people advice because I don't want that to happen again. Um, but. Uh, so I really had to give myself, you know, that advice. And then, yeah, of course, I kept applying for things while feeling increasingly discouraged. But um, at around the same time, I applied for a job in Seattle for a residency in Scotland at the Center for Contemporary Arts and for a postdoc at University of Victoria. 
And after a whole year of not getting a single thing I applied for, I suddenly got all of those three things on the same day. Oh. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I, so <laughs> I could only take two of them. Um, so I wasn't able to take the postdoc at UVic, but I was able to take the job at Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. And I did need to start that job right away, but they said I could take the second semester off to go to Scotland. So I, no, wait, that was, no, I went to Scotland first. Then I went to Seattle. So I was in Scotland for three months at the Center for Contemporary Arts in 2007. Then I started my job in Seattle in 2008. And I, you know, I had a great time teaching at the Cornish College of the Arts. It, you know, Seattle's a nice city. I never really loved it. I never felt 100% like it was home um, in the way that Halifax still feels like home and Glasgow now feels like home. But, you know, it was fine. I mean, I liked it there and I, the teaching was great and I had really good colleagues. But the three months I had had in Scotland really stayed with me because I just had such a great time here. I really, I just love the arts community in Glasgow. People are really friendly and really open. Mm -hmm. And there's just a sense that like, if you want to try something, other people want to try it as well. Like people are, uh, you know, I think some of the sort of famous art cities in the world are actually quite closed. Like if you moved there, it would take a long time for people to include you in whatever they were doing. But in Glasgow, it feels like everybody's always excited to meet new people. There's a lot of interdisciplinary things going on. So it's really easy to find sort of both, you know, standard connections, like writing music for a music ensemble, but also less usual connections, like, you know, just doing interdisciplinary um, things or just performing in unusual circumstances or so on. Um, and a lot of the biologists whose work I had been reading when I was studying, you know, about the relationship between animal song and music turned out to be in Scotland. So I got to know many of them when I came here, started developing collaborations with them. I ended up having, you know, a few commissions in Scotland. Um, so I sort of, I don't know, I had sort of a, an occasional artistic life that was happening here, even when I was mostly living in Seattle. I met my partner in 2009 and I sort of, you know, in a sense, like, because of course you can't really expect to find work anywhere, but I suggested to him, like, you should look for work in Glasgow. Um, he actually, uh, he's an oceanographer and applied for a job and got a job here in 2011, but it was when I was like eight and a half months pregnant with my first child and that nesting instinct thing kicked in and I did not want to leave my home in Seattle. Um, I had applied for a job at the conservatoire here as well. And like I got the day after Milo was born, I got a note saying, can you come for an interview in four days? And it was like, no, <laughs> no, I can't. Um, it, it just wasn't the time, but we sort of, so he actually turned down that job, but we decided we would come here on sabbatical. So, you know, a year and a half later, we came here on sabbatical. We felt really sad that we hadn't decided to move here. The same job came along he applied again got the job and then i was ready to move um so i i quit my job in seattle which i mean it feels a little bit crazy to quit a job but it was a very teaching focused job and i felt like i wasn't getting much time to compose so i was sort of prepared to be a freelance composer if that's what i needed to do so i quit that job um, we moved here my second child was born um i remember i had my second you know really low point in my career when again I had applied for six things 
you know, my daughter had just been born. We had just moved here. I had just quit my job. I had applied for like six, you know, commissions or projects. Again, they all got turned down, like one right after the other. Then I broke my ankle. And I was like sitting in bed, not able to get up because of my broken ankle. And I was just feeling like I would never, ever have any work again. So of course, I, as you have to do, you just have to make yourself keep applying for things, even when you feel like it's completely hopeless. So I kept applying for things and eventually things started to pick up. And then eventually I got my job at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, which is great. I absolutely love um, teaching there. So first I started, I got a research fellowship in the research department, which was great because in the UK, there's sort of this concept of practice-based research or artistic research. I think right. the concept's sort of gradually spreading in Canada, but at the time I was in Canada or the US, it, it wasn't there yet. So what I love about this position is that I can sort of combine my more academic research interests in animal song with my compositional exploration of animal songs. And I feel like, uh, you got, you know, I can sort of finally bring together all the different sides of the things that I'm interested in. And then, uh, you know, I started teaching in the composition department as well. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up here. And I do miss Canada. I miss all of you. So I, it, touches me to <laughs> know that you still think of me as one of you but i also i love glasgow very much i feel very at home here too i mean strangely i f i feel like i mean sometimes it almost feels like glasgow is a very far away sort of european part of canada because of course especially in nova scotia there's so many scottish people um and there's something about the culture in scotland also that just feels very similar like i've never really felt I don't know. Sometimes I feel culture shock when I go to England, but I never feel culture shock in yeah. Scotland. That was, so. I wrote that down in my notes, actually, because I also think of Glasgow as being like a, just a big, a big Halifax. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, the accent is very different and certain things are quite different, but I did have a sense of, you know, wanting or feeling this like this was my home right away. Nice, nice. It feels like research plays a large part in a lot of your composition do you ever make compositions that aren't about something are you making any abstract compositions anymore uh, is that is yeah that i mean I do, I do make abstract compositions in a way i you know i would feel like if all my compositions were about something it feels a little bit like cheating i don't know i don't know i would want to uh I would want to feel like I always could make an abstract composition, even if I mostly choose not to. Um, can we can we just stop and note for a second that most popular music is about something? It's true. So maybe, it's true. Maybe yeah. that's our problem: is that we're not writing, making music about stuff enough. <laughs> yeah. I, now I'm just looking at my list of pieces. So, I mean, a lot, I would say about a third of my music is about or based on animal songs somehow. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a third of my music is based on a story or poetry. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I really like telling stories through music as well. And then maybe a third of my, no, that's an overestimate. Okay, <laughs> two fifths of my music is about animal songs. Two fifths of my music has something to do with words. And then maybe one fifth is abstract. I think that's wonderful because um, so, so often we're, I mean, so often creators, well, I'll talk, I'll speak about myself. You know, any creation that I do is I can really only manage, 
most of the time it's it's sort of an abstract idea that comes into my head that i mm. that i that i work on and and that's 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 hard hard way to go and and it's deeply unpopular with audiences <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but i think i mean some of it's about where the idea comes from and i think sometimes like once i get an idea mm. from somewhere then it becomes abstract in the way i deal right. with it or it can yeah. Yeah. um yeah so it's probably not as i don't think there's a firm distinction between abstract and i don't know programmatic we're all, or i mean we're ideas. all fed by our life's experiences and what's going yeah, on around yeah, us yeah yeah i mean i will say that one of the things i really like about writing pieces based on bird song is just i mean obviously i'm interested in birds and i'm interested in the natural world but some of what i enjoy about it also is just the process of coming up with an idea for a piece that's based on bird song so for example if i'm writing an abstract piece i might be I don't know, sitting at the piano and improvising or possibly drawing a visual sketch or, um, you know, I remember at various times, like I've just heard a sound and I've been interested in that sound or an interval or a sort of abstract idea. Um, whereas for writing a piece that's based on bird song, often I do a lot of listening to bird songs. At first, like the piece I wrote for uh, Fifth Wind Quintet mm -hmm. a few years ago, Woodwings, which is based on um, bird songs from across Canada. You know, for example, for that piece, I wanted to somehow, it was one of those Canada 150 commissions and, it, you know, it needed to be a very Canadian piece. And I thought, you know, I'll base it on some Canadian bird songs. But I have to say, I totally enjoyed the process of that, which was, first of all, I found out all the 450 species of birds listed in Canada. Then I put them all down in a spreadsheet. I listened to literally every single bird species. Um, I kept notes on each species. I actually ranked it not on the basis of like this is a good bird and that's a bad bird but just on like how much i thought i wanted to use that bird for the piece so i would give it like a number out of five and then i went back to all the fours and fives you know again in the sense that you know i thought they would be most likely to be the ones i wanted for that piece listen to them again then once they sort of settled on the species then i really like listening to lots of individual birds within that species and getting to hear the differences um so in a sense I mean, once I had the, I knew what species and which recordings I was interested in. Um, and I, I guess often when I use bird songs, I like to sort of think about how the birds develop their material. I mean, they don't necessarily <laughs> develop their material in the same way, do, same way we do, but let's say the species specific patterns according to which they present and connect their material. So when I'm influenced by bird songs, it's usually not just the, um, you know, say a little excerpt itself, but sort of the whole behavioral pattern of how they put the song together. You know, like I, like I said earlier, composition can be very hard. The blank page can be terrifying. There's lots of different ways that you can, you know, try to face the blank page and start coming up with ideas. And for me, one of those ways is listening to a lot of bird songs and then starting to take notes about what I'm hearing in the songs. There's comfort in spreadsheets sometimes. There can be, yes. I, yeah. I, I totally <laughs> yeah. get that, you know, yep. to be able to see what it is. And I, and I know other yeah. composers that write with post-it notes. Right, you know, exactly. You can see ideas like forming on a wall. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah I do that as well. Well, not post-it notes, but I, yeah. um, you know, as I'm writing the pieces, I always, you know, I 
print them out and put them up in the wall and move things around. And I feel like, I mean, I often make visual sketches as well. I, I sort of feel like, again, you know, probably for every aspect of composition, it's helpful to be able to um, approach it from multiple directions. So there's writing it, there's playing it, there's sketching it visually, there's putting it in the wall, there's thinking through it. Uh, there's, you know, sometimes I'll write out a verbal description of the piece. Um, you know, I'll write out like what I want the narrative structure of the piece to be. And then of course, when I look back at those notes, the piece is almost never like what those sketches were, but you need the thing to get you started. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the visual sketches. Is that literally pen drawings on paper? Yeah. Sometimes I just do, um, you know, sketches of the shapes or the textures or things like that. I guess there's sort of different uh, layers to that. I mean, there's there's sort of the purely visual sketch, which, um, you know, I'm not expecting anybody would ever play off of or anything. It's just sort of my note to myself about how I want the piece to develop or the different, you know, progressions or contrasts or textures or whatever are in the piece. Um, I also, I mean, often, not in all pieces, but in many pieces, there will be a stage of sort of graphic notation in the piece. Maybe I want a certain texture and I don't know um, if I want to specify exactly how that texture is realized or give possibilities for it to be realized in a variety of different ways. Um, and in many of pieces, my pieces, I sort of go back and forth between you know, notating something uh, traditionally or doing some graphic notation that points in that direction. And often I don't really know till towards the end of the piece, which is the right way to right. realize the piece. Because I think, mm -hmm. you know, if I have something in my mind, maybe it needs to be realized exactly like that, in which case, of course, I need to use traditional notation. But maybe there's a lot of related ways of realizing it that would be just as good, in which case maybe I can come up with an aleatoric or graphic notation that mm. um, will get at the kind of sound I want in a way that also gives the performer um, more ownership over how they relate to the piece. And then it just recently I've done a couple of scores which were completely graphically notated, like not just, you know, aleatoric boxes with some notes, but actually just like completely visual um, and you know, last year I wrote a piece called Ganetry, which is for uh, clarinet and layers of recordings or looper or live electronics. It, again, it can be realized in a variety of different ways. As I was conceiving of the piece, I didn't know at first whether I would need to fully notate it or whether it should be sort of aleatoric box notation or whether it could be more visual. And I started making visual sketches and then I realized actually, yes, I like the visual sketches. Um, so I ended up, you know, it was, it was sort of a collaborative project where I was discussing with the clarinetist and the other composers in the project and a poet who was working with us all along. And in a way, I think doing it in a context where we were all discussing our process as we were working gave me the courage to go with a completely graphic score. And I was thrilled with how it was realized. Like, I feel like it probably realized my ideas even more precisely than if I had tried to notate wow. it. And so I'm interested in that also, like, how can you give something to somebody that's quite, um, um, you know, it's lines and paper and various textures that build up and some instructions for how to realize that. And yet it sounded exactly 
like I wanted it to, even though there were so many possible ways the um, the musician could have done it. So, um, so when I talk about visual sketches, that can mean anything from just something very preliminary to something that's a stage in getting towards the eventual traditionally notated version to something that actually becomes the final score. I'm interested in the the idea that a graphic score, a performance of a graphic score could be even clearer than <laughs> what you might have written. Because I mean, I'm a big fan of graphic scores because it gives so much, so much uh, importance or, or responsibility to the performer. Um, but I always imagined that composers of graphic scores were just creating a, a possible world and not yeah. a specific world. Yeah. Do you think... Is that true, do you think? Do you know? I mean... Yeah. Well, I, I mean, again, I think, you know, people can be doing either of those or somewhere in between. I was, I actually ended up writing two graphic scores for that particular concert, and they were actually very different. Like one, in a sense, was, yeah, just some suggestions um, for a possible... Sorry, there's... Somebody with the door and the dog barking. <laughs> I, just, I like the sections. I wish we could include the video in the podcast because the sections of you walking around your oh. house, it looks a little bit, it's a little bit like a horror movie where you're walking around and it's like, right. I know he's here somewhere. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh. This is just my kids at home. Like, okay, it is a horror movie. <laughs> it is. I, I'm on an interview. <laughs> You can include this bit if you want uh, oh, people definitely. to know how chaotic my home life is. <laughs> uh, Leah, oh, uh, for a podcast, Leah, do you want to say hi? What's a podcast? This is Leah. Well, hello there. Well, well hello. hello. Oh, you have a bubble tea. Bubble tea. You got bubble, bubble tea. tea. Wow. Nice. This is my six-year-old, Leah. Hi, Leah. Hi, Leah. <laughs> and this is my nine-year-old, Milo. Hi, Leah. And I'm going to add it. Leah has an adult. Hi, Milo. I can see, see that, that there. <laughs> okay. And two wobbly teeth. And two wobbly teeth. Okay, I'm going to close Mommy, the door now, Leah. Your interview. It's for a podcast. So What's a podcast? It's like a radio show. You can hear What's it later. It's a radio show. <laughs> it's sort of like TV, but without pictures. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Um, uh, graphic scores. Oh, graphic notation, right. So one yep. of my pieces is just suggestions. It could be interpreted in many different ways. Um, and then the other one is pointing towards a particular sound world. I mean, of course, it could be realized in a variety of different ways. But um, yeah, I was interested to think about the difference. Like one is, like you say, suggestions and possibilities, and the other was sort of a way of getting at a particular texture that I wanted. How does that work with different performers, though? Do you find the graphic notation, the interpretation of the graphic notation changes from performance to performance, depending on the different performers? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, those two pieces haven't been performed by anybody else yet. I mean, I have an, I do have one piece, Social Sounds from Wales at Night, that I actually wrote on my first trip to Scotland in 2007. Um, and that piece is... It's for solo instrument or voice and tape. I wrote it for Helen Pridmore. Um, and it's since been performed by a number of different, you know, voices and instrumentalists. And the piece, I think the piece is eight minutes and maybe 45 seconds of it is improvised. Um, 
And one of the things I've really enjoyed about all of the different performances, you know, it's probably been performed 20 times or more by different people. So I've heard a lot of different interpretations of it. And the improvised section is uh, supposed to be, you know, supposed to fit in with the parts that the instrumentalist or singer has been playing earlier, which are mostly transcriptions of whale song or sort of accompaniments to whale song. Um, so it's supposed to connect with that, but depending on the instrument or voice people use, like they bring out really different aspects of that. And I've completely enjoyed that. So I feel like, you know, every performance I've had, the improvisation has worked really well. And it's been, you know, it's really added something to the piece and fit in, um, you know, in the musical and whale song context, even though it's been quite different. Um, but Ganetri and Macher Flowers are both quite new pieces. So um, I know I have a couple other performances of Ganetri coming up soon, and I'll be really curious to hear what they'll be like. Oh, I wrote another not entirely graphically notated piece, but um, during lockdown, you know, during those first few months when it was really hard to you know, concentrate on anything. I got a lockdown commission from a violinist here in Glasgow, Ruta Vitkaskaita, and um, I ended up writing a piece based on all the birds that could be found in my garden. So I was like, you know, listening to every bird as it came along and transcribing it. Uh, interestingly, there was a European blackbird, which was sort of the bird that got me started, started on my interest all. in animal songs. Um, and so I was, you know, really focusing in on not just the species, but the specific indiv individual birds that were coming to our garden. And, uh, you know, I transcribed the bird songs, but then the performers are free to realize them. Again, it was a piece that, um, you know, somebody can put together with different layers of recordings. So Ruta made you know, made a recording for a video premiere where she recorded all these different layers of songs and then put them together. So that piece has been performed a couple of times now with quite different realizations. I guess, you know, I wanted the piece to be open for a variety of different sort of narratives. So it could be a, you know, a rainy day where almost nothing is happening in the garden, or it could be a very um, busy, warm early morning where everything is singing or you know anywhere in between so yeah that piece is open yeah to quite a wide variety of interpretations so i'd say like social sounds um from whales at night there's a definite sort of narrative trajectory to the piece but the improvisatory bit could be realized in a lot of different ways so there's no one way to make that trajectory happen it just happens whatever they do um gardenscape you know, the bird songs themselves are notated, but the overall shape of the piece is very much up to the performer. And again, it could be performed by a group of instruments or one instrumentalist using recorder, I mean, tape recording or electronics. Then again, Macher Flowers is, it's based on nine poems by a Scottish poet, Don Wood. So in a sense, the structure is a little bit set i mean you wouldn't have to perform all nine poems but you know there's nine poems so probably most people will be doing all of them and each drawing can be you know it's quite wide open to interpretation but the structure is not going to change very much like i don't think somebody would play one of the poems for 20 minutes and then the next poem for you know 30 seconds it's going to be um probably nine 
realizations of one, two, three minutes each. Um, and then gannetry, which is the one that I had a specific uh, sort of texture in mind. I'm thinking about, you know, these huge gannet nesting colonies where there's like tens of thousands of birds making all these sort of interweaving sounds. I have a particular texture that I want to build towards, but it's going to be up to the players whether they want that to build over a few minutes or, you know, 20 minutes, it's sort of up to them. Um, and then at the end, I gave the player the option of, you know, just building to a really loud wall of sound and suddenly stopping or maybe sort of sailing away so the sound recedes. So they have sort of two choices for the overall trajectory of the piece, a lot of choice in terms of how long it will take and proportions and so on. So I think, I guess maybe my answer is that it's complicated, like there's so many different <laughs> features of piece that you could or could not decide to change in different ways. So different graphic scores may be open in various different ways. This episode is one of the episodes we're doing in partnership with the Canadian Music Centre. So can you talk to us uh, about your relationship with the CMC? Yeah, well, I remember, um, you know, they used to send out those, it was before computers or not before computers, but before, you know, websites. So they would send out all these like folders of information about Canadian composers. I remember I, right, I remember sent away those. and I had yeah. that. I wonder if they I still like have booklets. it somewhere. Yeah, booklets. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So I had that booklet and it was sort of my dream. I really wanted to be a Canadian composer. Yeah, so I remember looking through that material. There were also, I think there were some records where they, did they have mm. records sort of samplers yeah. of Canadian composers yeah. and I remember just like really you know pouring over those and um trying yeah just getting to know different composers and trying to imagine being one of them one day um and then I joined I think after I came back from Amsterdam so probably in 99 or something like that I haven't often lived in a city where there was actually a branch of the CMC so I for example, I think when I was in Halifax, there was not a branch there to go hang out at. No, there was in Montreal, so I know I used to get all my scores printed there. But I have to say, like, now that I'm a Canadian living um, far away, I really appreciate all the news from the CMC to sort of keep in touch with people and what's happening. Because, you know, even though I'm not living in Canada, I do feel like it's still... I mean, obviously, Scotland is my musical community, but Canada is also my musical community. So it's great to, I mean, of course, Canada is such a, you know, large country that it's really important to have that kind of information that's shared across the country because you're not actually all going to be running into each other at every concert or something. Um, yes. But I, I will say that's, I, I mean, this is actually something that I really like about both Canada and Scotland. Like I was felt like the CMC helped create a sense of, Canadian new music community, or I, I mean, it sort of goes all across Canada, no matter where you live. And so you feel like you're part of this new music community, even though, you know, you're not necessarily seeing everybody all the time. But I don't know, I feel like I know who we are as the Canadian new music community or something. When I lived in the States, everything felt so much more fragmented, like I never really felt like an American composer. And I don't know if anybody really feels a sense of community that goes across the whole country. I mean, obviously, part of that is um, the country is just so big and there's so many people, but also there's no funding that's available to everybody and there's no there's no group that sort of is there for everybody. 
Um, where Scotland feels very much like there's a new music community. Like again, well, obviously it's not as big as Canada, but it's big enough that you're not going to see everybody all the time, but there's a sense of um, everybody being it, in it together and wanting to make things better for everybody. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I can tell you what I'm working on a lot right now. Um, I mean, just these couple of weeks, which is not actually writing a piece. I mean, I am writing some pieces, but the thing that I was working on today before this, one of the things I love about my job at the conservatoire is that um, I get to facilitate interdisciplinary collaborations for people. A lot of the biologists that I got to know through my uh, animal song researcher at St. Andrews University, which is a couple hours from Glasgow. And as it turns out, the conservatoire works very closely with St. Andrews because our graduate degrees are granted through St. Andrews. So it's part of my job. I've not only gotten to do my own uh, collaborations there, but also to help facilitate collaborations uh, for uh, research staff and artists at the Conservatoire in St. Andrews and for doctoral students. So right now I'm working on planning an interdisciplinary residency um, at a property about half an hour outside of Glasgow and also planning an interdisciplinary mini symposium. So, uh, mm. you know, I think one of my very favorite things to do is to meet interesting people and talk to them and introduce them to other interesting people. So I can't believe that I am so lucky to have a job where part of what I actually get to do is meet interesting people and put them in touch with other <laughs> interesting people nice. and help yes. them do yeah. collaboration. So I, um, yeah, I spend quite a lot of time, you know, talking to people at the conservatoire and finding out what collaborations they would like to have and then talking to people at St. Andrews and finding out what their research interests are and then putting people in touch with each other to let these projects develop. So um, that's what's been occupying my time right now. Um, Piece-wise, I'm actually, I'm writing a piece for, Marcel Dontremont, who's in Halifax, I think. He's a tenor um, somewhere in, yeah, I believe he's in Halifax. Uh, and he's commissioned a bunch of people to write pieces based on either Nova Scotian popular songs or traditional songs. And so I'm working on a setting of a tune called Peggy Gordon, which I was listening to some of those old Helen Creighton recordings and this tune Peggy Gordon came along and it sounds very, very much. I mean, it's almost exactly the same as an English folk song called the banks of the sweet primroses, which I, there's a great recording by the Copper family. Who's like a traditional, um, a family of traditional English singers who is, you know, it's just a bunch of, old men who have been singing in their family for like many generations and have sort of carried on all these traditional songs. And I love their recordings and I love their recording of the Banks of the Sweet Primroses. So it was cool to hear the same tune um, as a Nova Scotian folk song with different words. Um, but I've sort of been sort of trying to trace the history of this song and figuring out which elements I will want to use of both. Um, plus, if you read the lyrics, of either of those songs, they're really disturbing as many <laughs> folk song lyrics are. So I'm trying to figure out like which works versus I can extract from each that don't seem to encourage people turning into stalkers and, you know. <laughs> oh, <my goodness>. <laughs> <laughs> ah, those English folk. Oh my gosh, it's pretty or bad. Scottish and, and Nova, Nova Scotian, Scotian folk. folk. Nova Scotian yeah. folk. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness, yes. Um, yeah. yeah, some of those songs are just 
dreadful. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out like which words I can use that don't give me the creeps, but which keep the great melody. So I'm just figuring out how to arrange that right now. Great. Yeah, this has been fascinating, Emily. Um, you know, I've known your music forever, and I've played it, and I've loved it, and it's just so neat to sit down and listen to. We've played your music. To, we've played your music together. Oh yeah, even. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara and I. Great. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And, yeah. 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 So it's it's just wonderful. I was just thinking, can I send you the recording of me playing a trio with another oboist in my whippet? Because he's a really good howler. Oh, yes. And you should yes. absolutely listen it. to it and you should include it in the podcast because he's really a very, he's a very good notes. singer. Is it online somewhere? We could, it we'll is. Put a yeah. Link. Yeah. We'll, put yeah. A we'll be able yeah. to put a link in. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm really, I mean, it's funny because, of course, most of my uh, animal song research has been on bird song and whale song and a little bit on seal vocalizations, which sound so much like music. Um, and of course, a dog howling doesn't really sound as much like music, but actually the interaction is amazing. Like when they're interested in the sound, there's a real sense of give and take and nice. listening and responding. So I'm I'm interested in the social aspect of that, which yeah. of course yeah. is just as much a part yeah. of music making as the sound. When my dog sings, it's usually just because I'm playing out of tune. Oh, really? Or, yeah, <laughs> she's really critical, and I, yeah. so I don't like interacting with her. Oh, really? <laughs> I said, just critic. go to another oh. room. You don't have to. Are you be in are you sure room. that the dog doesn't just like the microtones? I don't think so. You don't think I don't so? Think so. Oh. No, yeah. uh, we've both Sue and I have both. Uh, uh, observed her uh that's so her funny like of uh, yeah tuneness yeah uh, funny yeah. yeah well my dog seems to like i mean he likes long tones on the oboe but uh i've start, recently started playing oboe duets with a, another canadian oboist actually who lives here Kristen cook um and uh we've been playing a piece that i originally wrote for flutes but we've been playing in oboes with sort of very long tones that are quite close together and the dog really seems to quite like the you know the dissonances nice. and the oh, sort of close harmonies yeah. okay yeah, so. yeah. maybe i need to do a little more research into penny's yeah uh, yeah penny's tastes yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my it's me it's not you it's me as usual so, Emily, thank you very much for your time today. It's fascinating to hear about the core of your work, which is really, uh, <laughs> really inspiring, really inspiring. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, it's it so is. great to talk with you both. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Emily. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to New Musings on New Music, demystifying contemporary music, produced by Suddenly Listen Music. Check our podcast website for links to music and information that will eliminate and illustrate our discussions. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and podcast news. Suddenly Listen acknowledges the support of Arts Nova Scotia in the presentation and production of this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>